0: Introduce yourself and say something like, oh, sorry for the Biden moment. Seriously. Seriously, my, my name is Royce Rosignol. I'm a faithful believer of Jesus Christ and I am a member of the leadership team for Celebrate Recovery. Continuing on with this discussion Jesus had with his disciples, starting in John 6, Jesus says, A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come. When you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. This morning I would like to leave with uh, one of my favorite verses, and it's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but will have everlasting life. I love you, faith family. God bless.
1: Thank you, Royce. Not sure I can thank you for all the ad-libbing, but it was a very effective reading and a great cap with John 3.16, so thank you for bringing it home eventually. <laughs> it's a tough passage that we gave you this week, though. It was a bit of a tongue twister to begin with and stuff. I thought you handled that admirably, so way to go. We were nervous about that one because uh, and he's gotten enough applause this morning. Let's not get carried away. If you know him like we do, that's enough. <laughs> I also want to just um, acknowledge and uh, welcome my predecessor, um, more importantly, my mentor and friend and his lovely wife, uh, Bill and Barb Kripe, are here somewhere this morning. They've already blended in. I can't over there. I'm getting some finger points and stuff. It's best if I don't just fixate, because I won't stop staring. (laughs) So glad to have you with us this morning. You're most welcome. I want to begin at the end of the passage that Royce had read for us, in John 16, 33, Jesus is indicating where this whole discourse has gone. We've been saying over several chapters now, He is saying the most important things or the most captivating things to His friends, His closest followers, the disciples. And he caps this part of the discussion off with verse 33. He says, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. So he's indicating my aim is that this will settle your hearts, not to stir you up or freak you out more. It's to calm you down, to prepare you because in the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. So Jesus is preparing these guys who have been up and down the roller coaster ride. They've seen the the height of the success. They've seen him also kind of shy away or move that success along. The 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 um what's the word I'm looking for? Accolades. I was thinking adulation and accolades all at the same time. Um and and, and sort of shunning that and saying this is not what we're here to do. We're not here here to build a popularity movement. Uh, Jesus is coming to do business with sin and death and so they've seen him uh, come to the height of success and then push that away and then pick fights with those that were in authority and and make a mess of things that would seem on the surface and then at other times be the most tender and present person bringing healing and, and restoration to the lives of people and stuff and they've been all over the place and now it's culminating to this where Jesus is saying now everything we've been working towards for three and a half years is coming to a head. You need to be prepared for coming persecution, to prepare yourself to suffer. You will face fear and you will even face death. I was thinking about this as we're going through the study this week and stuff just going, man, what a privilege we have. To have the word of God available to us, it's, it's alive and it's living. So the actors in the play, I say figuratively speaking, thousands of years ago were carrying out a message. They were going through lessons. They were being inspired. They were seeing transformation take place. And all of this was so that it would still be preserved and ready for us in 2022. We, we've read historic novels before or, or, or accounts of history and those kinds of things. And the actors, the players in those dramas, weren't necessarily uh, thinking far down the line. They probably had some sense of what we do now will count for the future and stuff. But, but imagine, Jesus knew that the words he shares with the disciples, the, the lessons that he's teaching them, and the preparation of him laying his own life down would impact you and me here in Waterville. So history was being written for you and I to glean these lessons, to receive these promises, and to walk accordingly. And so while Jesus is saying to his followers, you need to get ready for persecution, tribulation, sorrow, and suffering, and even death, we then borrow that and we say, okay, so it's a different era now. Jesus was accomplishing something very specific at the time, but has that warning gone off? Is it no, is it expired? Do we no longer need to heed that? But in the last several weeks, as we were working through this gospel of John, we actually said, no, in fact, we need to anticipate persecution because Jesus says, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. A servant isn't any better than his master. And then we took it one step further and said, rather than just anticipating it, we should probably learn to welcome it. And that was the harder pill to swallow. Because if you're like me, being a human being, you'd like the path of least resistance. Jesus says this isn't how we get the work accomplished. The path of least resistance wouldn't have put him on a cross, which means he wouldn't have died for our sins. And he would have just been another historic figure who did some good things and was inspirational and we'd have him on our t-shirts. But instead, he changed the course of human events and he saved all of those that would come to him. So most of us have a battle to fight. Most of us are looking down the 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 road towards coming pain or persecution or suffering, and we're saying, "So what am I supposed to do about this? What am I supposed to do with this?" And therefore, the words that Jesus shares his disciples we can easily borrow because they land in our world as well. I would say it this way: that full hope, what Jesus is communicating here, full hope in a secure future, provides patience for the battle at hand. And that will be our challenge as we go through this passage of scripture is what is Jesus saying about what comes after the pain and suffering that we need to hang on to that we often don't give ourselves the room to entertain because we're so caught in the here and now. So they're going back and forth in these first several verses and he's saying this word, this phrase, little while over and over and over again, he's, he's, um, he's watching them have this debate after he had said, look, a little while I'm going to be with you. Then after a little while I'm going to be gone. A little while I'll be back and everything. And they're saying, we don't get it. We don't understand. In fact, Jesus, what we'd like you to do is explain what you mean by a little while. Enough of this vague language. Don't keep speaking in terms of like parables or something like that. You just said that that the heat in the kitchen is going up. We want to know exactly what to expect. And so instead of answering them with specifics, you know, this is what we do, right? We script, we flip through our scriptures and say, when? Now, let's count the days. Let's figure out the years. What does this mean in Daniel about the weeks and all these kinds of stuff, all these kinds of things, because we're obsessing about how can we know for sure when it's about to happen. And Jesus keeps responding in these kind of vague, I said, in a little while. Hang on, it'll be a little while. And that doesn't satisfy our human desire, our need for more answers. So he responds instead with a deeper Answer, And we'll break that answer down into three parts this morning. First is that he's saying to them, I overcome your sorrows. So we'll pick back up in verse 20. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful. I would say it this way, um, what is Jesus saying about how, to, how he's going to overcome our sorrow? First he's going to say, if you stop believing the headlines, if you stop believing everything that you see, and, and, if, you, and if, you, if you forget that and start to ponder what I'm about to tell you, then your sorrow will turn into joy. He says, yes, expect it. The world is going to dance on my grave. They're going to think they've won. This whole system, we said this cosmos, this created order that's turned its back on God and moves like a machine against everything that God that is in God's will and fights him tooth and nail over everything. That whole mechanism, that movement that individuals are all swept up into and a part of, that we've been rescued out of, moves against God. When they see me in a grave, they're going to dance on it and say, see, we knew we could beat him. We knew he's just another one of those that came to, that claimed to be one of God, but he's not. So we don't have to alter our lives too much. We don't have to believe in his name. We don't have to see all these. Let's just go about our, our things doing what we always do. He says, anticipate that, expect it. And remember what we've been saying is just the mere announcement of these things is going to bring about its own encouragement to the disciples when they see it happening. The fact that their leader said, expect this to happen, and then it does, even if it's negative, even if it's painful to see or participate in, they're going to say, but he saw that this was coming. He said this, so okay, check. We know we can hang on a little while, and then this will be behind us. The world will rejoice for a bit, and you will experience the same sorrow. This phrase really refers to being plunged into deep sorrow. And so Jesus is acknowledging you're going to feel this. I kind of like, you know, you see the tone of the shepherd coming through. He's not browbeating these guys going, why are you wimping out on me now? Why are you flaking out about, well, we don't know when you're going to. He says, look, I I need you to expect something here. This is going to hurt. It's going to test your faith more than anything else you've ever experienced. Do you hear the tenderness from the shepherd's voice in this? He's acknowledging a reality. He himself felt it at the loss of his own friends. When you lose somebody, it hurts so he 's not glossing over that he 's telling him to expect it now, in a really kind of crude way of looking at the emotional roller coaster that these guys have been going up and down and, and going through. I just want us to imagine the fictitious guy who thinks he 's won the lottery and he, and, he's, and he goes to the store and he gets i don 't know how these things work i 'm sorry i 'm going to be a little ignorant here um, and if you do know and you win, I want to know later. Um, but, you know, they they get their ticket or they, I don't even know, it used to be like on on like a Saturday night, you'd go and turn the TV on and see who won. I don't know if it's all just, you know, solved electronically now or something, but, you know, he finds out, okay, I've won. I picked the right numbers, and I've won. So what does he do? He's like, okay, we've seen this before. I can't just go tell the world. I have to keep this under wraps. I'm going to get home as fast as I can. I'm going to huddle the wife and the kids and everything. Guess what? Our lives have just changed. Look, here it is, and it matches, and they're all like, I can't believe this. We're freaking out, and this guy is thinking my life is about to change, and he says, but I can't say anything about it yet. i got to sit on this for a little while. Because i got to get my professionals lined up. i got to get my tax attorney, my financial planner, all these kinds of things. I don't want to be one of these lotto millionaires who loses it by tomorrow. So we're going to do this right. That's why they don't announce right away who's won. And so he goes to work the next day. He goes back to the grind to do the thing that he's always got to do. But it's changed for him. He says, I don't have to do this forever now. I get to Hank Williams Jr. this thing and tell this boss what to do with his job. Was it Hank Williams Jr.? It's one of those guys. I get to tell him what he can do with this job. And so, easiest day of his life. He doesn't have to worry about the consequences of the grind. He kind of doesn't take it all that seriously and everything. And then he goes home, and his teenage daughter comes down the stairs all excited. And She's like, Dad, I've just been so excited about the news you gave us. I know things are about to change. I finally decided to get off my lazy rear end, as you're always telling me, and I did laundry for the entire family. So now everything's folded in its place, and he's like, um did you do my pants from yesterday? She's like, I assume so. Yeah, right. You're feeling it now, aren't you? Just a little bit. I didn't think it'd work this well. I guess we all imagine just a little bit too hard about these things, right? And so he's like, uh, sure enough, goes and finds him that tickets mangled. So he's at the lowest point. Then he goes, wait a second, just a couple of days ago, I wanted to keep this for a record. I took pictures of front and back of the ticket with my phone. I wonder if that would work. So he goes to Google on his computer. Sure enough, looks like they'll actually accept that. I'll be able to show my ID and all this kind of stuff. And they'll kind of trace it all back. So he's like, I just got to get my phone out and see the thing. And he turns a button on and he's like, how, how come it's not coming on? Why isn't my phone working? And it's a, you know, just this ridiculous end of, and now you're all like, well, did he win? Did he get, he's fictitious. Stop being so invested in this guy. (laughs) It, I don't know how the story ends. He doesn't exist. But the point is, is that this feeling of, I'm getting there, I'm getting there. Oh, I guess not. Oh, uh, it's going to happen. It's, oh, uh. you, you know, again, it's just money. It's just, you know, that kind of, we're talking about the, the changing of the world when it comes to following Christ. And here, these guys, it seems like on every turn are feeling like, hey, I think we're winning. We're on the right side. And all of a sudden it gets taken away. And hey, I think we're winning. And then it gets taken away. Jesus says, expect more of this. For a little while, the disciples are going to feel more than just a little let down. They're not going to just reminisce about, oh, remember the good times with our buddy? Remember how cool he used to be and everything? They invested everything to follow him. They left it all behind. And now he's saying, I'm going to leave. And it's going to look like to everybody who put me in the grave that they won. And you're going to have to endure that for a while. But then he tells us to anticipate the promised result in verse 20, 21, he says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. More specifically, her human being has been born into the world. So again, he's, he's saying this is normal. When you're facing normal pain, normal testing, what happens? You're, you're, you have great sorrow. You're plunged into, to deep sorrow. You have anguish going through that experience. And this illustration of a woman giving birth is so helpful for us to understand because facing that normal process of life causes a normal amount of grief or pain. And so he says, don't think this, this is weird. Instead, anticipate it, expect it. Now, I can't, I hope I don't talk about this too much, but I can't go through a a, a passage that talks about a woman giving birth without sharing some of our own experiences in the small family. It'd be, be like, wow, you really missed a slow pitch there or something. But if you think about, like, that would be the normal reaction. I just want to give you, this will not illustrate the point at all. This is just stupid for me to bring up, but normal would be um woman in the delivery room saying, you know, what we see on TV, she's yelling at her husband, You did this to me! How could you ever do that? That would be normal. And everybody understands, like every man in the room goes, I can't deliver a baby, so like they get all my respect and, and everything. That would be normal. Abnormal is the woman I'm married to. Who and I, and I share this. I share this because everybody thinks I was the ogre who said, woman, you're going to be barefoot and pregnant and have nine children and everything. I'm a victim. I've said this to you before. I'm a victim because <laughs> abnormal looks like this. She is in the delivery room in between. Again, she's like, no, I don't want to do the medication route and stuff like that or uh, the epidural and stuff. She goes, uh, in between contractions, and you know how nurses and doctors will talk to you about, oh, have you picked a name and stuff, trying to relax her and everything. So yeah, she's sharing the name of this one she's about to deliver. And then she starts talking about the names of future kids to come. She's like, and then we're thinking for the next one. And so, you know, that's not normal is what I'm trying to get at here. <laughs> That would have been the time for you to go, oh, most people kind of... No, I knew I was in trouble. I knew that it was just the beginning of many more to come. She's already got them all named. Jesus says after the baby is laying on a mother's chest, after all that work, she no longer remembers the anguish. You get the sense that he's hinting at, this is how it's going to be for us when we are at rest in glory as I'm no longer thinking about all that sludge i had to go through i'm no longer thinking about all that pain and all those issues i'm 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 at rest i i no longer remember all that anguish so he says in verse 22 so also you have sorrow now but i will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you Why? How can he say this? He's saying, because I will see you again. This little while thing, it keeps coming back to, but you'll be with me again soon. And Jesus could be referring to a lot of things at once here. Immediately, he's referring to the fact that even though I'll be in a grave, I'll be back in three days. And when I come back, he he said he he would come back and, and be with them. And he visited them for 40 days and spent time with them, allowed them to take it all in and be like, I can't believe you're here. We just saw you die. And and they needed that time. And then he said those things to them and sent them off with a mission. And even after he was ascended to his father, even imminently, he is promising the presence of the spirit that we see arrive in the early part of the book of Acts. And what Pastor Tom had shared with us last week in John 16, when he said that I will send, this will be a better plan that as I go, I'll send a Holy Spirit who will come and be present and living within each of you. And in verse 13, he said, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth for he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So as a side note, how do we know if somebody is spirit led, spirit filled? How do we know if a church is spirit led, spirit filled? They will glorify Jesus. And then ultimately... Jesus easily could have been referring to the fact that, you know, even after all of this is done, either by death or rapture, you'll be in my presence for all of eternity. John, the writer of our gospel, also pens even a little bit more in his first letter in chapter 3 of First John. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And we know the encouragement that comes from Revelation. In chapter 21, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Jesus is saying, you're going to have some sorrow now, but I'll see you again. Your hearts will rejoice, and no one will be able to take your joy from you. Once you've experienced the resurrection of Christ, once you've had his spirit take residence and root in your heart, then you start to understand that he is who he is. You believe him for all that he's revealed himself to be. And then there's no quenching that fire. There's no turning it off. And this is what exactly what happened to the disciples. After Jesus rose again from the dead, he had to go find him hiding in a room because they were feeling the actual real effects of losing him, which was sorrow and depression and defeat and everything you and I would have felt if it happened to us. And he goes and he finds them specifically to encourage them and to remind them that what he spoke was truth and to prove it to them. They went from that cowardly kind of desperate place to, to preaching in the streets and being willing to lose their lives for it and take beating after beating after beating. Why? Because they encountered the resurrected Christ. And he did what he promised to do, including even to send his spirit after he left. In Jesus, our temporary hurts become everlasting joy. And that is the thing that you and I need to exercise greater faith in. The things that sting now, we have to really just kind of walk in and say, Lord, I don't like this. I'm acknowledging the fact that this hurts and I'm not okay with this. You said you would expect that of me, but I'm asking for more. I'm asking for a trust and a release of this pain to be able to trust that you're going to do something else with it later, even if never in this earth. You ever notice that some people have like a, an inordinate amount of suffering, it seems to follow him all through this life. And I, when I see that, I'm like, man, heaven's going to be amazing for that person. Some of us have our, our times with suffering, comes and goes, things that we have to overcome. We all have something. But then you see others who are really going through it. And one trial after the next, one little plague after the next and things. And I just think, man, heaven's going to be so sweet for that individual. Because of all that release that Jesus is going to give, taking all that weight off their backs. Jesus overcomes our sorrow, but he also overcomes our deficiencies of which there are many. Let's go back to verse 23. In that day, you'll ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. So how does Jesus overcome our deficiencies? Well, he says, simply ask in my name. And so this is the phrase that is so often repeated in our Christian circles. And, and when put in the hands of pretty dangerous and false teachers, it becomes this encouragement to just tag his name on anything you want. Believe in the power of the name of Jesus. And if you, whatever you want, just throw his name in the mix and then squint real hard. And it'll come true. It'll happen. In fact, he's obligated because he said, if you ask anything in my name, then I'll give it to you. And so we're like, hey, hey, you're not, letting, you're not keeping your promises here. What does it mean to ask in the name of Jesus? You know, in, Intuitively and instinctively, experientially, there's something in us that goes, yeah, it doesn't really work that way no matter what the bill of goods is that the other preachers will try to sell and everything, we kind of go, I don't really think that happens. I've tried that before and it didn't happen. They always have an out. You just didn't believe enough. But is that what Jesus meant? Tag my name onto anything. You see, Jesus is introducing a major transition here. Basically, he's saying, you don't have to ask anything in my name when I'm standing right in front of you. Uh, Jesus, I'd like a second helping of stew in your name. I'm right here. You just asked me. You don't have to repeat it. Who else are you asking? I'm the one with the ladle. You know, that's that's what Jesus is getting at for in the immediate here is that I am with you. It doesn't make sense to tag my name onto anything, but there is a time where I will be gone. And you will then ask of the Father things in my name. So what does it mean? Let's undo some of the abuse of this phrase real quick. Um, Richard's... Uh, lays out several um, applications of this that I just want to walk us through here. Uh, if you're writing down, I'm sorry, I won't go very slow through these things, but I can give them to you later. Um, he says, first, asking anything in the Father's name means that you and I identify the content and motivations of our prayers with all that Jesus is. Now we're starting to get the picture a little bit more because we've seen who Jesus is. We've been reintroduced to him over and over going through the gospel of John. Oswald Chambers says that praying in his name is the same as praying in his nature. Now we've got some alignment that we have to do. We know who he is. We've seen him reveal himself as to his character and his conduct and his heartbeat and all those things. And he's saying you pray in that nature as you bring these things to the Lord. So if some unnamed individual, I don't know who this would be, another very fictitious person, is asking, begging God for a brand new Jeep Wrangler Rubicon with lifted suspension and oversized tires and aftermarket stereo and other things. And he's, and he's I don't, again, fictitious person, who, who would do such a thing? And he's saying, uh, you know, Lord, I've been a good boy and I'm asking in your name, believing that you want good things for your children. I have some reconciliation to do with who Jesus has revealed himself to be. Is he a Jeep enthusiast? Scripture doesn't say. Would he think they're cool if he saw him? Maybe. I don't know. happen to think Jesus might be that kind of guy. But is that what his mission is? Is that what he wants me spending my time in prayer over? Romans 8 helps us out a little bit here because it's getting us to understand that we're really not good at this prayer thing. We need a lot of assistance when it comes to it. So Romans 8 verse 26 says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we don't know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Let me see if I can put that again in my silly example of some fictitious jerk praying for a new Jeep. Uh, God, I really want this. Please bless me with this. Um, and I'm going to tag your name on it. And I'm going to just ask you to reward me with that. And the Spirit's l- receiving all that going, yeah, that's not going to fly. Uh, and I'm, I'm humanizing this. Please don't think I'm being, you know, sacrilegious over the work of the Holy Spirit. But you can imagine if he were carrying it like something he had to bring to the Father, going, I'm not delivering this to him. Be- because the way that that prayer, it's so far off mission, so far off heartbeat. For who God is, I am going to do something. So in in these interpretations and groanings, it probably comes out a little bit more like, Lord, we've got another one of your children, another one of our children, who is who is wayward in thinking that this provision is all that their heart needs. So we need to become... Even more real time, we need to work through uh, the events and situations of their life so that that prayer starts changing towards, Lord, keep me content in all that you've given me. Lord, help me to see my provision comes from you and not the things this earth. You see, and it's like I almost imagine that there's some of that interpretation of these otherwise pathetic and weak prayers that we offer sometimes. And so we start to rejoice and be thankful that there is one who hears me and and makes sense of what I'm messing up and says, I'm not done working through the brokenness of this prayer language here, and we're going to change it to be something that is more useful. And then also, Richards points out that we would pray with full confidence in him as he has revealed himself. We've talked about this already. When you know, when you're intimately acquainted with the heart of Christ... You can come to Him boldly. You want to come to Him boldly because you know you're, you're praying things that you know He's for and He cares about. Imagine a, I'm picking on the guys this morning, I guess, but imagine a husband who is praying, God, I just need her to be different. I just, I need her to not be so much her. I need her to conform a little bit more to the things I wish and prefer and things. And so, Lord, if you would do me the favor of just Transforming my wife to be more of my image of what I think would make me a happier, more productive, even more pleasing husband. I'd, I'd do that in return. Imagine if Jesus were sitting right next to that husband as he's praying that. And, and, and he's saying, Lord, so would you please change her, change her, change her, make her new? And Jesus is looking going, I'm sorry. Did you think that was the message I was leaving all this time? Was that the demonstration you saw from me? That I show up and I look around and go, what a mess. These people are never going to, hey, look, I'm not dying for you until you clean up your act. And so once you start showing me that you're ready for this a little bit more, then maybe I'll keep. He just kept marching. He just kept going forward towards his sacrifice because he knew they were incapable of doing it. So when we're praying things like that, and he's going, oh, that's not what you saw out of me at all. So when a husband or anybody, for that matter, starts changing the, the core of their prayer, but when he starts sounding a little bit more like, Lord, I don't know how to be what she deserves. I don't know how to be content with what you've given me. I'm not settled in my own heart, so help me to learn to lead and love and live sacrificially for her. I saw you do it, so you must know the keys. You must know the secret to it, so do that in me. Jesus is like, okay, now we're cooking. You see, this is what it means to pray in his name, expecting boldly, Lord, I know you'll answer this request. It's been my experience, and anybody else in ministry in this room or at the sound of my voice would say, yep, when you start praying a prayer like that, Jesus answers in the affirmative every time and starts a process and a work in that person because it's praying more to the character of God. And the last point in this section would be that we would come on the basis of his merit, not our own. You go out there and you try to do something great. I want you to say something out loud and say, whatever your name is, it's Jack in Jack's name. It won't go anywhere. It doesn't do anything. What have we ever accomplished? What have we ever succeeded in? The reason why we pray in Jesus name is because he's the doer. He's the conqueror. He's the one who's victorious. We come on the basis of his merit, not our own. This is how Jesus overcomes our deficiencies. And lastly, Jesus overcomes our fear. Again, being a straight shooter, meeting them where they're at, he says in verse 28, I come from the Father and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. Again, more heartbreaking kind of, yeah, we've talked about this. We're trying not to face it. We're trying not to admit it. So his disciples said, well, okay, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative language. You're not going easy on us now. Kind of ripping the band-aid off there. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. And almost can almost imagine, because again they're moving towards the Garden of Gethsemane. I heard one preacher explain it this way. He was like, Can you imagine you start to see like the torch lights coming through the through the garden towards him? And he knows the arrest is coming. And here his disciples are once again claiming their bold belief. Now we're good. Now we understand. Now we see it fully. And Jesus is going, do you really now believe? Verse 32, because the hour is coming. The torches are coming. Indeed, it has come. When you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. As we've said before when we were examining like the life of Peter and things, it is just such a freeing and and right place to start by acknowledging how weak and pathetic we really are when it comes to how well we can be trusted and counted on in all of our bold statements and all of our grand schemes and ideas. Instead, start to see ourselves in the lives of these disciples who would have had every reason and every resource to be bold and back up what they believe. Jesus is like, it's not going to hold together. You're going to split As soon as you hear the clanking of swords and you see the fire of torches, you're gone. But I also want you to hear something else different about this. Because again, we've been talking about Jesus being the shepherd. This isn't a dig from him. He's not saying, you cowards are going to bail on me. Don't even. That's for you and me to admit and to confess. But Jesus isn't trying to condemn them. He's saying, there's no other way to get this done. If you try to prevent them, they don't arrest me. If they don't arrest me, I don't die for you. This is the way it has to be. God has always been in the business of using our failure for his glory. And that's what he's about to do again. He's you're going to chicken out. It's just the way it is. Understand that I have to do this alone. It's a very shepherding posture that he's taking here. I've got this. And how do we get to that place of recognizing that faster? We do that by admitting our weaknesses in order to promote the strength of Jesus. Jesus. Left to my own design, uh, designs, I'm a coward. Apart from Christ and the power of his spirit, I wouldn't see it through. Paul acknowledges this. We've used this verse recently in Second Corinthians 12 after he had been begging God to, to relieve him of, of trouble and suffering and things. He said, well, God re- replied to me. Was that my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And we've talked about, even a couple weeks ago, we talked about the desire for those kinds of things will outweigh the temporary desire of giving in to all of our temptations and, and, and things that we fail at. If I desire that God is in display in my life more than my own power, I'll get out of his way. And then we also learn to trust in his victorious work. Let's close this passage out again and repeat these verses, picking up again in verse 32. <laughs> yes, he's teaching him something, but he's trying to alleviate some of that heaviness. Yet I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. I've said all these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world, you'll have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. He says, I have all I need, even after you abandon me and you go back to your your homes. I have all I need. The Father is with me. All he needs to succeed. And so again, we're borrowing these statements. We're using them in our life right now. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, how long do I wait in my loneliness or my despair or in my anguish For the presence of the Lord to be the thing that I needed. How quick do I run to, uh, multiple relationships? How quick do I get the remote or pull the phone out or something and just go to my constant feed of entertainment? Or how often do I go back to my addictions, revealing how unsettled my heart is? Because this answer of, I have all that I need because God is with me is like, yeah, I don't know. It's not that appealing. But Jesus says, if you live like me and you um, go through this like me, but you do it in my strength, then you will have peace. You will have peace in me, which is, of course, the great longing of our hearts. That's why we chase all those other things that fail us and lie to us, because we just want some sense of being settled. Jesus says, if you follow me into this, rely on my strength, you will be settled. George Morrison says that peace is the possession Of adequate resources, think about that. When your when your bank account is full, I don't know what "full" is. When it's got a lot in it, do you have a tendency to over freak out? Some people do because they're not satisfied with whatever. But don't you sometimes feel like, "Eh, yeah, car could break down? We just pay the guy to fix it. Go get a new one, something like that. So what we, when we have adequate resources, we're more at peace. And Jesus is saying, see me as your adequate resource. What the Spirit does in a believer's heart is that he builds up his understanding that I have all I need in him, not in what this world has to offer. So he says, because I've overcome the world. Let's close it with this. Does that, does that appear to be true? When you look around... When you like look in the mirror, when you experience all your things, you look at your own checkbook, um, you um, see what goes on in the political world, or you feel things in your body physically, or you see other people feeling things in their body physically, or the emotional problems that we all go through and different things there. Uh, Does that seem to be the case that Jesus has overcome the world? It seems on the surface like an empty promise, but if we go back to what did he come to accomplish? Spiritually speaking, he came to lay his life down on the cross to nail our sin to the cross. So regardless of the things I feel in my body or the things I see going on in the world around me, my sin has been paid for. My ultimate debt for all of eternity is covered. And his resurrection, he took death and nailed that to the cross as well and said, even if you experience a temporary death, as painful as it might be, it's the only one you'll experience. When you're with me, you'll have no more threat of that, no more fear of that. You will be uh, forever united to your Father. And ultimately, he's overcome the world, yet to come by his return. Jesus in this era did not come to deal with all of our financial problems, our political problems, physical, emotional, all those kinds of things. He didn't come to do that yet. That's what he'll come and put to rest when he returns. I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward because we're going to sing a song that has in its bridge this tenacious. Uh, they use the word reckless in the song, which has been a little bit scrutinized and stuff. But it really, I think for me, conveys this kind of aggressive, tenacious love of God that says there's no shadow you won't light up. There's no mountain you won't climb up coming after me. There's no wall you won't kick down. There's no lie you won't tear down when you're coming after me. This is the great God we serve. He said, I've got this. I will place myself in the hands of my arresters. I will lay my life down for you. Would you please stand and let's sing together.